Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We are dapperly dressed once again in our tuxedos with our Walter K. PP7s tucked neatly into our breast pockets as we bring you part seven of the MMO James Bond character study. We're reviewing today the second film with Daniel Craig playing the role of 007, Quantum of Solace. This is going to be the usual format, non-spoilers at first, then a spoiler-filled section in the second half. So here to tell you all about that is the other Mike, also Mike. Yeah, we got a couple cool segments up top, getting into character and historical significance and give you guys a little bit of the behind the scenes. Then I think the spoiler section in this study, Michael, it has brought out some of the best and worst moments of our show's (laughs) history. The dad jokes are terrible Mm -hmm. and they're glorious. And on that note, let's start with a translation of the title of Mm. this movie, Quantum of Solace. You were very excited to do this. Yeah, from the Latin, it means <laughs> a lot of hugs. It means a lot of hugs. Uh, you know, a large amount of comfort, a.k.a. a lot of hugs. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of hugs in this movie. There are many uh, many embraces. Uh, this movie is about a lot of hugs. The numerous of hugs. Yes, that's uh, <laughs> it's apparently what we're talking about today when we review Quantum of Solace. An interesting movie because if you listened to our last episode when we were previewing this one coming up, we, we we don't have many memories of this one. Mm-hmm. We uh we know we've both seen it. We know we both have feelings about it. But if you're asking for specifics, uh, neither one of us were really all that uh, uh, a, sh- a sharp to it. So it was kind of interesting to rewatch this for the first time again, even though it's not the first time. So let's talk about all things Quantum of Solace here, Michael. The non-spoiler section. Let's kick it off and talk about getting into character as Daniel Craig pr- plays Bond for the second time. Yeah, this is the 22nd Bond film, A Lot of Hugs, and it's directed by Mark Forster of Monsters Ball. There's a lot of hugs in that movie, uh-huh. too. Yes, Finding good. Neverland, I mean, so many hugs. Mm, Stay, mm. Ryan Gosling, Naomi Watts, a few hugs. World War Z, you know, one particular hug at the end. And I guess every zombie's bite is also a hug. So yeah. Mark Forster. Yeah, he, zombies want to hug you, right? That's yeah. their whole thing. They just happen to want to bite. Mark Forster's wheelhouse is a lot of hugs. This is a career culminate, culmination for him. Anyway, I got some notes on the screenwriting of this project because Paul Haggis from Crash, Million Dollar Baby, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, the twosome, the American twosome from The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, and they also penned one hell of a script for Casino Royale along with Haggis who did the ending there. Now, those are the writers of record, but in reality, Michael, we had a writer strike that happened after Haggis, yeah. Purvis, and Wade basically left like a rough draft of one of the first drafts of this thing but the stoppage went through like the start of production so they had no way of finishing this and what the producers did for this quantum of solace was that they only allowed two people to write this and it's daniel craig and mark forster so i thought that was fascinating yeah, so in a way, Daniel Craig got into character by literally writing his character into this movie, which is yeah. kind of the first time in Bond history that a James Bond has been left to his own devices with the script. But we did have other returning cast members in this as well, including Judy Dench, Jeffrey Wright, Giancarlo Giannini, and Jesper Christensen as Mr. White, for a bit anyway. Uh, newcomers to... A lot of hugs here, is also That's Mike correct. is calling it, yeah. <laughs> include Olga Kirilenko, Matthew Amalie, and Gemma Arterton, and of course David Harbour from Stranger Things fame. Yes, A Lot of Hugs was the fourth highest grossing bond at the box office with a $589 million worldwide take on a $200 million budget. It is the seventh highest grossing film of 2008, Michael. You and I should be doing all these specs while we're embracing one another and sharing one microphone, (laughs) I feel like. Uh, As for the reception of Quantum of Solace, a.k.a. Many, Many Hugs, critics gave it a 58 Metascore. It carries a 65% on Rotten Tomato. Audience voted for a 58 audience score on Rotten Tomato, and it has a 6.6 out of 10 score on IMDb. Talk about its awards profile, not a huge one. Quantum's best showing was Best Sound and Special Effects nominations at the BAFTAs, and as we've talked about in this series, the Bond movies tend to do better at the BAFTAs than pretty much anywhere else. 
But a definite mixed set of reviews for this movie, right. for sure. And it had a you know steep hill to climb with Casino Royale and how good that film actually was to reboot this franchise. So I'm actually surprised at how good this movie was, in my opinion. But we'll get to it, Mike. To bookend this segment, though, with some Daniel Craig info of his getting into character, he actually slimmed down for this follow-up role. He had bulked up for Casino Royale because he had that moment coming out of the water there in that uh, little, what it's half Speedo, it's half, like boxer brief mm. bathing suit right mm. there that you and I should never or could never wear. <laughs> I'm wearing one right now. So for lots of hug and bear here, he decided on running, on boxing as the, his maiden training methods. And when he wasn't writing the script or working out, he was practicing speedboating and stunt driving. It's nice to be an A-list Hollywood movie star in an action movie, huh? <laughs> in your spare time, you're practicing speedboating and stunt diving. Not a bad uh, bad work if you can get it. Also, maybe the critics were harsher on this film because he was slimmed down and there was less of Daniel Craig to hug in this movie. you got to think with the big picture here. They wanted the beefcake. They want to feel safe in his arms. Uh, now, did all the training by Craig work? Well, not exactly. During production, Craig was apparently gashed to the result of eight stitches when he was kicked in the face. Some super spy you are, Daniel. Uh, he also eventually required plastic surgery on that. And then somehow, some way, he ended up getting the tip of his finger sliced off. Yeah, he joked about that. Like, he uh, can't have a criminal career anymore which was a very funny joke in uh, Wikipedia. Because he doesn't have the, the fingertips? Well, yeah. He, no, he would be uh, recognized as having one less fingerprint, <laughs> I guess. That's a dad joke if I've ever heard one. <laughs> yes, sir. We're starting with the live and let dad joke section <laughs> earlier. Right, folks. Going right after it. The historical significance of Daniel Craig's performance and of this movie on the film industry. I joked before we hit record and maybe my own dad joke. It's tough to say this movie is historically significant when the two mm -hmm. talking heads here talking about it, myself and also Mike here, remember literally nothing. don't remember yeah. it having any impact on us whatsoever or remember a thing about it, but... We'll get into it, and there is some stuff that this movie definitely set the trend for or borrowed from. By Bond movie stats, this movie, quite correct, statistically does have the most hugs, so there's it that. It does. No, I can confirm. It has the most <laughs> hugs of any Bond movie. It's also the most violent James Bond film thus far, with 250 moments of violence all being truncated into the shortest Bond film of the series at 1 hour and 46 minutes. Ironic, because this took me... Like three or four sittings to get through, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I was in for the uh, tension relief. I mean, there's a lot of fighting, and then there's a lot of hugging. I mean, it's fighting, hugging. It, it worked for me. <laughs> Nothing really anyway. tension like a good hug. <laughs> Anyway, about the star and director actually writing this movie, there are some pros and cons because Forster and Craig, they do understand like why and when scenes work. They understand characterization. They understand that they had made, had to make James Bond overmatched by land, by air, by sea, literally all three of those in three different sequences. He is an underdog and he has this inferior, inferior vehicle to prove it. Like when he's in the Aston Martin, he's going against trucks. When, and tractors when he's uh, in the boat he's in this rusty old boat and he's going against all these fast moving speedboats and yachts right and then when he's in a plane he can't really maneuver and he's going against fighter jets so I thought that was a really cool job by the writers Forster and Craig but they didn't have the 21 films of James Bond, you know, before this in their heads. You don't see as many callbacks as we got in Casino Royale. Forster, uh, for the record, Mike, he said he wasn't even a huge fan of the original Bond movies. That's but he took... always a red flag to me. Yeah. I, I mean, if we were to talk about the casting of this and the production of this and the pre-production as if this was a story on MMO Weekly. Wouldn't we be chastising? We always gush about wow, well Halloween's in good hands because David Gordon Green seems like such a fan. Matt Reeves seems like he's such a fan of the Batman prop. If we were to come across this and we had a guy saying eh, I'm not really that big of a James Bond fan but I'll give it a crack, we'd probably come down a little harshly on that, no? And I agree, and that's why I'm putting it in my con section here because, you know, he's not a lover of the franchise at large, and you don't get them playing with the franchisey fun stuff as much. And neither did Casino Royale for the most part, but they also took the piss out of a lot of conventions, obligatory scenes, all of those, you know, trademark bondisms, etc., etc., that I think uh, Haggis and company had fun with in that one. Uh, here, you know, 
you got some OG Bond cred with these production values. Dennis Gassner said he designed a lot of his sets to imitate OG Bond art director Ken Adam. Uh, and I agree, the hotels in this fe- felt very Dr. No. They felt very early Sean Connery Bond. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Forster wanted as many practical effects as possible, choosing to record a particular aerial sequence, for that matter, in an air tunnel instead of in front of a green screen. I know you're going to have commentary about this later, but I do think a lot of these... Uh, were practical effects. Yeah, and, credit, and, credit and it works too, movie. especially for the time of 2008. Uh, this was done and it deserves credit. It looked okay. I cannot help but wonder, though, about all the could-have-beens for this movie. Like, was was there five more jokes or one additional actually memorable action sequence at the ending that would have made this a film that stuck in our minds and made it a better film at the end of the day? You wanted a 251st moment of violence? How dare you? That's just obscene. <laughs> <laughs> I th- but I still, I mean, like, going into this, we couldn't remember one action sequence. I think we remembered one bad guy kill that we'll talk about a little later. But uh, I didn't remember an action sequence. I kind of remembered the desert, but that's really still, there's not a huge sequence there. Yeah, they're know. damned if they do and damned if they don't. I think the most memorable part about this, without giving it away now, is a callback to a previous Bond movie. That's something mm-hmm. I did remember. Uh but I only remembered it after seeing it for the second time. I'm like, oh yeah, I do remember that. And it, so, you know, it's 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 a tough it's a tough poll because yeah, they're trying to be you know give you the, the homage to the longtime James Bond fan, but they're trying to make their own claim. But they already made such a unique and independent claim, reintroducing Bond at all with what they did in the last movie with Casino Royale. So in a way, this was never going to live up to those expectations anyway. It was just a tough spot, I think. It was a tough spot, and I'm I'm glad they tried to carry through the story with a direct sequel here. I thought that was right. a, a wise move for them, uh, rebooting the franchise and just getting that money in the door. I mean that that really nailed the box office for them. So, one last production note before we talk about some significance on the genre, at least. Uh, Alicia Keys, Jack White, they performed the song at the beginning here. It was kind of a clunky first listen for me, but I. I have it has grown on me over the course of time. I, I allow it to play now in my playlist, Michael. But here's who was supposed to sing that song, mm-hmm. and she just had another bout with drugs and, and that diamond spiral. I mean, Amy Winehouse. Yeah. If there ever was a perfect voice for a Bond movie theme song, it's Amy Winehouse, and that's what could have been. Yeah, when you say that Alicia Keys and Jack White's song grew on you, uh, my response was going to be, well, so do chicken pox and herpes. But uh, as far <laughs> as Amy Winehouse being, I'll have more to say about that song, but as far as Amy yeah. Winehouse, who was supposed to do this song, yeah, you're absolutely right. She would have knocked it out of the park. I think if Alicia Keys and her own brand, she was behind the song, or if yes, if it was one or the other, absolutely, I wholeheartedly agree. As for the franchise, though, and as for this very violent sequel to Casino Royale, I I do think we get movies that uh, follow these early two films. I mean, Captain America: The Winter Soldier is going to pull a scene Mm -hmm. out of this movie's book in 2014. Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol comes out in 2011. You know, maybe this movie takes after the first three Mission Impossibles, but A Quantum of Solace is made during the same time that uh, The Dark Knight is being made. So I'm guessing that they're taking a lot of influence from The Sopranos, The Shield, stuff like The Crow, and just like Batman Begins took its influence from from those kind of comics, rather than really a movie industry that has done 15 rounds with the anti-hero at this point. Yeah, well, the plot is clearly ripped straight from politics at this time, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm going to talk more about that as we go. But yeah, you can definitely see the influences, and you're absolutely right. You can see this being the influence for other action films to come in latter years all right mike we ready to go into spoilers a little early today yeah why not let's talk about lots of hugs aka quantum of solace and get into the spoilers spoilers ahead i'm just not sure that the tiara project is the best use of quantum's time perhaps we should shift our focus to the canadian this is the world's most precious resource we need to control as much of it as we can bolivia must be top priority can i offer an opinion I really think you people should find a better place to meet. This is a spoiler warning. 
This is the spoiler section for the James Bond character study episode brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar reviewing Quantum of Solace, Daniel Craig's second turn through as the MI6 007 secret super spy. Uh, if you've not watched the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause. Go check it out. We'll be here waiting for you to come back and hit play after you're done. If you've seen the movie already, or if you just want to hear our takes on what happens in the spoiler section, this is where you want to be. All spoilers for Quantum of Solace as part of the James Bond character study brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. And we have some cleverly named sections that are Bond-esque in title to get you through the spoiler section, Michael. Yes, we do. And I, But first, I just want to say this movie comes out on Netflix, uh, I think the 31st of August, American Netflix, by the way. So if you guys are waiting for it or if you're going to rent it so fast, maybe wait a few more days, you'll get it for free. We're not employed by MG MGM, so we can help our <laughs> listeners and say as much. Michael, the spy who's not me is our first glorious dad jokey segment. <laughs> it is discussing the fantasy elements of James Bond, why we want to but could never be 007. Right, so this is the seventh time we've started off the spoiler section talking about how we couldn't be 007, and for the seventh time, we're jumping right into some death-defying chase Bond finds himself in, but actually, unlike those other times, Bond's means of transport immediately, and perhaps finally, suffers some big-time damage. His BMW that he's driving in this opening scene gets fucked up with gunfire and window <laughs> smashes and iron rods through the driver's door, etc., etc., yeah, BMW versus tractor versus trucks in a small <laughs> tunnel. I mean, that's my nightmare, I mean, it, and it gets crushed. Uh, look, MI6, there is no possible way at this point in their existence that they have insurance. So this is this is like premium dollars for this yeah. door. So this is a $10,000 door, $20,000 car door. Yeah, they fill out the application, and Lloyd's of London just laughs at them and crumples it up in front of them and throws it into the the you know trash bag. Kobe, yeah, right in front of M's face there as they apply for the insurance on that car. Absolutely, but this does start with one big chase where Bond is bringing Mister White back to MI6 for interrogation, but White learns that M and Bond and MI6 don't know a thing about the organization he is tied to, which prompts an immediate double cross by the way too good looking anyway to be a bit player. Mitchell, played by Greg Foster. Uh, M, we think, maybe gets shot. It turns out she doesn't. White does get shot by accident. It leads to this big kerfuffle and this chase and fight where Bond is chasing Mitchell. They run through another construction site, kind of like was the opening Casino Royale as well, but this time it's done in-house as they crash through a glass ceiling of a church, I guess, mm -hmm. and Bond ends up ultimately killing Mitchell while pirouetting by hanging by his foot from a rope. So number one, I love the callbacks to the first movie. Uh, look, you get the car chase that was promised from the first movie right. at the beginning of this movie, and I thought that was genius. Yeah. So I was I loved that because that was a great reversal in Casino Royale. Then you get like all the parkour stuff. They're running over rooftops, but it doesn't work. It gets so much messier than the first movie because you know rooftops in Italy are slippery with all those tiles. They're, they're not <laughs> able to hang hang up there very long. And then he's crashing into every window of this movie and there's no surprise that he cut his finger off in my opinion so look i think it's it's still fantasy though because bond he gets a bit lucky like when his foot gets caught on that rope uh and when he almost does the ethan hun mission possible one thing like on the ground there mm -hmm. and he's and he's you know skimming the surface and he finally gets his gun just before he spins in that most graceful way to get that kill shot up and what was like a major trailer moment in the movie right like that was the coolest thing ever if it was us we would be pantsed, we would be squealing, <laughs> probably crying, uh, because there's broken glass on our shoulders. Major rope burn. Yeah. No, but yeah, but we would be rope burned, pantsed, <laughs> nude, shot, hanging there forever. And that's how we would be found if it was us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's many reasons we can't be bonded. We've gone over pretty much all of them, but... Like, okay, so Casino Royale happens, right? And Quantum of Solace is a direct 
sequel to the events of Casino Royale. Yeah. So if I'm Bond, never mind the physical stuff that I absolutely cannot do, you're absolutely right about, but just mentally, if I'm Bond having gone through all of what I did in Casino Royale with this woman, Vesper, who I love, and then she double-crossed me, and then I'm not sleeping, I see M potentially get shot on this other double-cross by this nobody named Mitchell, who's her bodyguard for eight years. If all this happens in succession with one another, all these events, and I'm sleep-deprived, and I'm just... I'm done. I'm out. Like, if I see him get shot, I'm just, I'm walking away. That's the last straw. I'm shooting everybody, and I'm disappearing. MI6 can figure out their own shit. I'm going to, like, Bora Bora. I mean, that's, the James Bond is on a short list of people who, like, should have suffered a mental psychotic break from being double-crossed and lied to by their own people so many times in a row. It goes, like, Ethan Hunt... James Bond, Sidney Prescott, and then 18 miles of shit before you get to number four on that list. So even in your trying to infuse this with some realism, mm. which I knew you were going to do in this segment from the very beginning, <laughs> even doing that, you are still, you know, just delusional because you're saying Bora Bora. <laughs> you're saying Bora Bora. We've each spent years mourning breakups with McDonald's and emo <laughs> rock music and too many movies about spies getting over their own breakups by shooting people up. Yeah, you're right. I should qualify. I would assume by that point, if I'm James Bond, I have enough money to shed tears at the Taco Bell in Bora Bora. So that's what I would do. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, look, I have a short list, but uh, reasons I could never be James Bond here. He swipes that motorcycle from underneath that guy in Port-au-Prince. I can't, I can't get over how smart that is. That is like one of the coolest moves I've ever seen. He just literally swipes up the handrail. The bike goes, goes up in the air. The guy falls off, and now Bond has your bike. And he's basically staring the guy dead in the eyes as he does it, too. <laughs> It's genius. It's one of the coolest moves ever. And then he manages to flex with his elbows up like he's driving a hog. I don't even know the uh, a chopper. You know, his elbows are up by his ears while he's driving this thing, flexing those biceps that you can still see through the jacket. And it's the coolest posture of motorcycle riding I've ever seen. What's the hug ratio? Like how how big is the hug meter right now when you see him doing that? Is the hug all the way to the green? Or is it like in the yellow somewhere? <laughs> Absolutely. Yellow <laughs> into green. Uh, he's lost in the desert, Mike. Number one, he's in the middle of the desert, and he's not losing his shit. Uh, <laughs> then he's able to give like a geological lecture about the topography to discern the villain's grand plan of draining all the water and, and damming all the water in Bolivia. <laughs> he's, what do you think the entrance exam is like to become a double O agent for MI6? Either he is such a bullshitter, right? And he just happens to be right, or he is in fact like Sean Connery. I was first in foreign languages and number one in Japanese for me again this year, gold medalist or whatever he right. said. Like if if you are actually that smart, there's no way these people should be super agents. We can't risk losing them in the field of battle. No, they should be turned and 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 they will take over the world, right? Other broke-ass <laughs> villains that we'll talk about. Anyway, there's a Captain America elevator scene pre-Winter Soldier here that is so badass. Yeah. I, th I thought it was the coolest thing. And then he gets to tell off his boss afterwards. And, of course, she immediately sides with him. I just thought that was brilliant. He manages to find a tailored tuxedo in that opera house locker room. And in other movies, like, I just want to see the outtakes for this one and put a Hall & Oates song to it while he's trying on and all the unfit tuxedos. It's like every one of his tuxedos is perfectly tailored, and yet he finds one, you know, by going through and shuffling through all these lockers. So I want to see that deleted scene. It's like the Naked Gun movie where uh, the Frank Drebin ends up being... Being the umpire Enrico Palazzo and those tuxes just happen to fit exactly perfectly. like it doesn't movie, yes. matter how the guy how big the guy is that he knocks out it matters that the tux looks good on him afterwards that's right all right so not where I was thinking but uh, you watch <laughs> those Enrico movies Enrico Palazzo Enrico Palazzo you watch those movies fortnightly because you just you quote them to me in every other day's text messages Mike James Bond shows up at Mathis's house right and immediately wins over Mathis's wife. Again, fantasy here. I would not do that if I was a visitor <laughs> at anyone else's home. Uh, and finally, this is the line 
that gets super agent slash supermodel slash one of the most beautiful women in the world, Strawberry Fields, plays by Gemma Arterton. This is the line that gets her in his bed. I can't find the stationery. Come and help me look. It's it's like, yes, it's such a male fantasy and I understand it, but it's so tacky and so misogynistic. Look, I mean, he wanted the stationery and she helped him look. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what happened. Mike, we got to talk about live and let dad joke the next segment about the best quotes and one-liners from Bond, etc. Yeah, so we, I, the first one I have is when uh, Bond is talking to M, and Bond has this encounter with this uh, contact, a man named Slate, who he accidentally, I mean, not accidentally, he purposely kills, but he kills because Slate attacked him, but M wanted Slate alive, and so M goes, what happened to Slate? And Bond's response is, look, I'm not dwelling on the past. I don't think you should either. <laughs> I killed him. Ferocious. Yeah, right. You should have seen it. It was dead. Great. You would have been, you would have been just, oh my God. You, you think the elevator was uh, sexy. My God, you would have created anyway, That's a great I, character I, if we had just blatantly obvious James Bond instead of the suave, cool dude. I stopped like seven sentences short because I didn't want to describe Dame Judy Dench's sexual feeling towards 007 there. Ugh, it's, it's a problem. Anyway, Mike, Lord I, got knows two I, quick, do. I got two quick ones. Uh, I think this was talk, talking about Mitchell, the turncoat double agent at the beginning, mm-hmm. where M is like, they got his body. And Bond was like, if they wanted his soul, they should have made a deal with a priest. <laughs> terrible that's a definite dad joke then he when he gives olga's you know uh comatose or you know she got knocked out during the sea you know chase Mm -hmm. and she gives it to a hotel guy and he's like thank you she's seasick (laughs) and he just kind of like forces her into another person's arms has no idea who this man is he's just a random passerby (laughs) he's probably not complaining but still take care of her she's seasick Uh, when Strawberry Fields tries to set Bond up on with his raggedy hotel and Bond refuses and Strawberry Fields protests saying we're supposed to be teachers on sabbatical. We need to look the part. This, this luxury hotel Bond wants to go to doesn't help us look the part. And Bond explains that away by telling the bellhop we're teachers on sabbatical and we just won the lottery. <laughs> That's funny. He's got the deadpan jokes going. Yes, they, he does. They needed, they needed five more of them. Finally... <laughs> Uh, I, I love the interaction with the airline receptionist until I thought about it. But he basically asks her, he goes, you're going to get a phone call in a minute. Would you mind telling them I'm headed for Cairo? Look, the implications of this is that this airline receptionist is going to lose her job, perhaps after several days of, <laughs> you know, torture or at least questioning from the British Secret Service, who has impunity to do so to her death if they wanted to. Yeah, I was thinking about that myself. And like, if that happened in America, are they under obligation to have to tell the government, like, what the government doesn't have a warrant, do they have to just tell anyone what people's flight plans are if they just call up and ask? Is that public knowledge? She'll be in, like, Guantanamo Bay and just, like, he was so hot I couldn't resist. <laughs> he said he was going to Cairo. I hope he would come back and take me out when I was on my break. I think he went to a Taco Bell in Bora Bora. <laughs> <laughs> have doctor please oh god no which is the bonds issues with women i was pleasantly surprised with this right. movie up to a point up to a point and i will agree with you at that point but in terms of the camille character played by olga kurienko forster and craig wanted james bond to finally meet his match they chose to keep things you know with the exception of one kiss platonic here and I do think we have a female agent infiltrating a bad guy's organization. Yes, it's by way of the honeypot. We're not entirely progressive yet. We just got mad at Olivia Wilde's character, Richard Jewell, getting ahead with the same you know means here. But in terms of her agency, in terms of Bond being so wrong about her, you know, he's told off and he's set right, and she, you know, has equal agency in the finale. So I was impressed. Yeah, everybody got mad at Olivia Wilde. I think you and you and I were on Olivia Wilde's side and saying she didn't do anything wrong in that character in that role. But I, I my memory's foggy on what exactly happened there. But by and yeah. large, for the Camille character, 
You're absolutely right. I was really, really surprised and happy. There was an introduction to a female character I thought was handled quite responsibly. We have Camille meeting Bond, posing as a taxi, even asking him to drinks, which isn't part of this immediate seduction that we always see these female characters have with Bond. It's all part of her plot, and they both know each other is more than they appear at the time. He has orders to kill her, even though he's posing as somebody else, and it's actually the guy he killed, Slate's orders to kill her. She tries to kill him. Camille does, tries to kill Bond. Mm -hmm. They depart, and the next scene is Camille bitching out her boss-slash-lover, Dominic Green, for ordering the hit on her. Uh, And even M, I thought, was written with more teeth to her in this one than she was in Casino Royale. She's bitching out Bond. She's setting Tanner straight on how badly the CIA and Beam actually want Dominic Green and how highly, uh, uh, highly classified his intelligence that he has is. I was pleasantly surprised with how the, the female characters were written in this. She's playing this triple agent game with like reckless abandon and all the courage in the world when you find out that she was just trying to get to the dictator at the end of the day and Bond screws that up for her. So in that big sequence in the middle there uh, in uh, in Haiti and they're, you're having that boat chase, she gets knocked out and Bond screws up her life's right. work. I mean, she's supposed to be this assassin, avenging her family, getting her quantum of solace, which we also realize is just sweet, sweet revenge, <laughs> licking the tears of your fallen enemy, which is proven to be something that we all want and is proven to be true and right and just at the end of this particular movie. Will it be proven at the end of No Time to Die? We'll see. Bond is growing. It's going slowly, but thematically at the end of yeah, this. Yeah, it only took 50 years. <laughs> Right, it's work. It's working here. It's a, for the moment. I mean, yeah, we all believe revenge is right, but it's you know the war on terror and all that, and you know we're going through some shit as a country. Anyway, Bond is learning. He's confirming that Vesper, his girlfriend from the first movie, the Bond girl of the first film, had saved his life not only once with the uh, car and the uh, resuscitator, but not only twice with the torture setup where she makes a deal with Mr. White, mm-hmm. but apparently three times, and we hear this from the mouth of Mr. White, where he says, if she hadn't killed herself, we would have had you too. Right. I don't get that. Well, he but... was so in love with Vesper that if she stayed alive, we could have tortured her, and we know we would have gotten Bond to talk or double-cross or do anything to be with her to make to spare her life I think is what he was saying there so Bond was Vesper and Bond's love for her was Bond's weakness for this guy who never shows any weakness and but there's something there's some kind of retcon there that I just don't get like her killing herself in the water was supposedly something that didn't allow the bad guys to capture Bond in that moment like I don't get that Bond ripped through them all and thwarted most of their plans I, there even I though I can't remember didn't she didn't she stay down there with some piece of information too I, I it's it's blurry to me I can't remember that either right off the top of my head she does give Bond that like the phone number for Mr. White right. I read that somewhere I didn't pick it up in the movie I was too okay. dense to pick it up in the movie but she does find I guess you were dense too so we're yeah. both dense together which is you know nothing new for our podcast but she was uh she was the reason why he got the clue to Mr. White and why they captured him at the end of the Casino Royale film there. But Bond usually, like in the next movie, after something like this has happened in a previous older film, he will screw out, a.k.a. F out his frustration <laughs> with another female character. Yeah. This is not going to happen with the main character in this movie. And I think that is a small step forward, even though there's another dynamic that will be somewhat exploited here that you're going to talk about in in a minute. But I do like the thematics with the Camille character because after she gets her revenge, he saves her life and he has to prove to himself through her that the revenge is not necessarily what's going to save them in the end and what should be the true cause of their life's worth. So I know I was making a joke before saying that revenge was the, you know, end ending of the, of this movie, but of course it's not. He realizes this and he proves as much by sparing the boyfriend of Vesper who basically got Vesper killed when he finds him in the final scene right. and gives them to M in MI6. Right. Right, and that was also his way of making nice with with M too, proving that he's not this murderous psychopath that's unhinged, uh, even though he kind of is with the way he we see the end of Dominic Green here. But true, uh, yeah, okay. So there's a lot of progressive stuff and a lot of stuff that we can be happy about with where the Bond franchise has gone in terms of its treatment of uh, their female characters, and then we have Strawberry Fields. Uh, it's all yeah. flushed directly down a toilet when Gemma Arterton's character is on screen. <laughs> Strawberry Fields literally shows up is disrespected and practically ignored by Bond 
because her only role is to show up and say, look, James, you got to go home. MI6 wants you. They want you to come back home. And Bond shoo-shoos her away, but she's stuck by his side the whole time to keep eyes on him. She immediately ends up in bed with Bond. Yeah. I don't understand this obsession the writers have. They like always need one female character every movie just to jump into bed first, and then they have that character prove themselves to be a capable side character, except that doesn't even really happen this time because once she's done helping Bond look for stationery, she's a dead body. Dominic Green has gotten to her in a latter scene, and she's covered in oil and dead. And unfortunately, like that's the most memorable shot right. of the movie that that was the only thing i remembered from the Same movie here. other than the poster really right that we've seen over the years was the you know the the covered in oil you know course which is, yeah of, i mean it's a callback to goldfinger which is kind of cool one was gold and now we're dealing with a, a presidency in, in real time that in george w bush's presidency that was all about iraq and oil and all this so this whole bad guy is written to be obsessed with oil and the whole plot has to do with oil and i understand it but that strawberry fields character bond goes out of his way to say she performed dutifully and she did her job well it's like well she she didn't do anything you just ignored her you treated her like shit and then you slept with her and now she's dead why was she even in this movie yeah it just you know we, we we can learn retroactively you know some lessons with these movies, I guess, but nay, you, you, you're right. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it's written by men who fan are fantasizing right. about a woman that beautiful being, you know, ready for, for exploits like James Bond <laughs> tends to have. Uh, it's probably wrong. It's, 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 it's probably illegal because you shouldn't screw your coworkers period. <laughs> and that's why Especially we have all these spies. Laws. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's consequences. All right, Mike, the next segment is Always Say Never Again, our moral issues with the film, and some more of the worst scene, uh, scenes and themes here. So you have a problem with the villains. They, they don't do anything. They're horrible on many yeah. levels. Uh, but what they do do is gross and grotesque, and they're worse than Bond, so much worse than Bond. Uh, at least Bond is not doing the horrible things like the misogyny and, and, and the racism that he was doing in earlier films. Uh, he's still killing people. He's got the license to kill, and he's still ruthless in that regard, especially early on in this film, that we hope he might learn from by the end of it. Even though, I don't know if we hope that, because he's got to have the license to kill, I guess, because he's, you know, the British John Wayne. Anyway, I think, uh, I think it, you know, we're going to talk about his questionable alliance in a minute here but uh i do think he's growing in these films thank god yeah speaking of questionable alliances that jack black and alicia keys song is absolutely atrocious it's yeah. it's i like it it's not morally <laughs> offensive to any other uh instance except for my sense of musical taste i don't i understand if amy winehouse had her demons and she couldn't do it and that's fine and we just said if you wanted to have one over the other it would have sounded so much better but this is like asking kurt cobain and like mariah carey to team up and just being shocked when it doesn't sound great like could you have two more diametrically opposed musicians than jack white and alicia keys trying to collaborate and sing harmonically it's a bit bizarre. It doesn't it doesn't exactly work. However, I will say I do let it play right now on the playlist of Bond theme songs. I don't but understand that might, it. I might just be a dork though. <laughs> like if it, if this was an Amy Winehouse song, dear God, it would have yes. been beautiful. And I think they kind of went that direction with the next movie with Adele. I mean, I she you know she kind of passed the torch or caught the torch from Amy, Amy Winehouse in many a way. Right. So, look the. Alliance I was referring to was Mathis. So am I crazy or is he just completely unnecessarily killed in this movie? Like, he's just (laughs) randomly in a backseat, passed out. Clearly somebody Uh beat him up and put him there to frame Bond. But then the cops just shoot Bond after he's gotten complete control of Mathis's body out of that backseat, after they see Mathis's back is pointed towards them. So is this just an elaborate setup to frame Bond to look like he had killed Mathis by what, holding him and somehow shooting Mathis in the back? <laughs> as uh, as arcs, as two movie arcs go, Mathis <laughs> might have the lowest, hardest fall of any <laughs> side character. Deals with all seen. kinds of shit. I mean, he was tased at the end of the last movie, falsely accused by Bond, wrongfully (laughs) fingered by Bond, subsequently tortured by MI6, 
rewarded with an Italian villa for him and his wife, <laughs> and then Bond visits him, and for some insane reason, Mathis agrees to follow right. Bond on his next mission, right. use one of his old connections in Bolivia, which of course immediately betrays him, to the point where Bond, who you think would have some some kind of protective instinct towards this man <laughs> who he's previously wronged. And who no. owes him nothing, by the way, is doing this pretty much him. out of the goodness of his heart uses him as a human shield austin powers style to save his own life and then kind of not kind of he throws his dead body in a dumpster afterwards and then he makes a comment saying oh mathis wouldn't he wouldn't mind (laughs) the disposal of the body is atrocious he's like he would have wanted this way no i don't know he wouldn't have he would have wanted to be buried next to his beautiful wife in his beautiful villa that he got because you were an asshole it's the least you could do. You shouldn't even put his... Oh, I guess afterwards he should tell MI6 where the body is. But look, I mean, it's irrelevant because basically in in terms of screen time, it was like 30 seconds before the police find all the bodies and they find the fact that Mathis is, is, is murdered and they tell MI6 that it was Bond who murdered him. So there's completely, it was just a useless gesture. He just wanted to stuff dead Mathis into a dumpster because he's probably still mad at him. So the cops... Were, do you think the cops were aiming at Bond, or were they aiming to kill Mathis in order to to frame Bond? I don't know. I don't know if I care. Yeah, I don't think I it think matters that, either way. I don't think, I think it matters. That scene is contrived to get um, dying Mathis <laughs> hugged. Number one, because the movie's called a lot of hugs. This was the longest hug of a mentor character that Bond's ever the had. longest meta joke in movie history as well. And uh, Mathis is a mentor. He is a loyal ally mentor to the end because his final lines to Bond are forgive her, forgive yourself. Yeah. Mathis may be the most pure character along with Osgood from Some Like It Hot. Like, we got to get a list of these guys who are just altruistically, basically angels sent from above for purposes of these questionable leading characters. Uh, Just Mathis, the shit magnet of the century. So, yeah, that's a questionable alliance, I would say. Uh, Also, a a questionable alliance in terms of cinematic history is Tom Cruise and his death wish, because I think he's kind of ruined any kind of skydiving scene from here on out. And look, obviously, this movie was made before uh, Rogue Nation, before uh, Ghost Protocol, before the big uh, fallout where Tom Cruise literally does the angel jump where he's actually jumping out of the stratosphere. But the look of that, how it happens in that movie, Mission Impossible Fallout, with Tom Cruise actually doing it, versus how it looks in this movie where Daniel Craig is in a wind tunnel and it's all effects driven and green screened or whatever behind him it's a stark contrast you can definitely it looked fine for the time for 2008 and it looked real enough because it was actual wind and actual practical effects that were happening to Craig in real time but if you go watch Mission Impossible Fallout and then go back and watch Quantum of Solace through no fault of Quantum of Solace's it just looks very very different and you can very much tell the difference between the two yeah, there, there's a big difference between wind tunnels and the real thing right. that we saw in MI6 there. But uh, in terms of uh, Mission Impossible and Tom Cruise and what he's about to do, like, they are not bringing him into space so that Tom Cruise can stay on the ship. No, of course not. Of course <laughs> not. I'll be surprised if he doesn't jump back into Earth. He is going to be out there frolicking on the moon. He is going to be in the space. Like I'm gonna, I'm going to be surprised if he doesn't die and get flung off like freaking, you know, X character in any space movie. I almost spoiled another space movie, but spinning around. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be Tom Cruise's gravity. You're absolutely right. I'll spoil it for you. <laughs> Well, you won't. You didn't say which character right. spinning out to nothingness. <laughs> Q only lives once, Mike. We talk about the cars, gadgets, and tech of James Bond. Not a lot of tech in this one, but we did have some nice cars. Yeah, we got the Aston Martin DBS making a uh, another uh, return to this one, which was cool. The V12 there, and yeah, that the door of the BMW probably cost a bajillion dollars, but we we do get an Aston Martin again. You know, I don't see anything special with the other vehicles, though. I mean, he used these old vehicles that were mismatched and that were, you know, underdogs to to what the uh, Bolivian government had, never mind anybody else. Uh, But we did have functioning cell phones. We had great response time on all the cell phones. (laughs) 
which I actually appreciate, by the way. I hate yes. when the, the contrivances and the tropes that have to write cell phones out of every script. I like cell phones don't go dead that often, people. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. They don't. We, Find, we don't figure have, out a way to write around them. We don't have a Q scene yet, but we I mean, not a not a, a scene that features Q necessarily. We got a briefing scene with a giant iPad table, though, at MI6, which I thought was pretty cool. And I don't know if it was from this movie or an Avengers movie or whatever, but they actually developed that technology from the movies, like the hologram screens or whatever. I think it was Minority Report. I was going to say that's that's what it looked like to me, but I wouldn't yeah. know for sure. So that, that that was cool, but no, not not good tech in this movie. Gadgets, one cool car. We're on a bit of a streak of not having the greatest of Bond tech that he's the franchise has pretty much made a, into a hallmark, which is a little odd. It goes back to even the Pierce Brosnan episode we talked about. There was there wasn't a lot of great Q technology in that, so it's a little bit peculiar. Maybe it'll pick up in the Skyfall movie. I, I don't remember if there's tech in that off the top of my head, but I'm excited to go watch that again. Uh, we can transition talking about Dominic Green and, and this Bolivian government overthrow in this segment. There's a reason tomorrow never dies, and it's because these Bond villains can never seem to kill it. So let's talk about some problems with the big bad in quantum of solace aka lots of hugs yes the antagonism of this movie is simultaneously too much and then not enough like there are five heads on this hydra Mm. this fire breathing multi-headed dragon and then all they do is make dumb speeches (laughs) instead of breathing any fire uh and basically bond brings the fire but basically what they do is they steal the water from Bolivia and upcharge them, and that's it. Why do Bond baddies need to have these grand schemes of robbing an entire country's water, robbing an entire country's supply of gold, robbing an entire country's supply of air? Like, just focus on a town, man. <laughs> I, I'm going to be into it in my gold fingers, but uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. It's not an... They, they don't have the capital. So here's, I mean, Dominic Green, that's the big bad. He's helping the Bolivian general Madrano, 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 I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. And he can offer him the country they're in exchange for a piece of desert that is supposedly useless, but everyone thinks Dominic Green is after oil that may be in the desert. So we have Green, who is dating the Camille character, and Camille proves that she's more than just some random pawn or sidekick like Mike told you about. She actually wants to get vengeance on Madrano, the general Madrano. Because Madrano did violence against her family and killed her mother. So Green is aiding the Bolivian government in this coup or overthrow. Mm. The CIA of America knows about it and is looking the other way from intervening because oil. And this is where I remind you that this film was written during a George W. Bush presidency. Right. The problem is the CIA promises Green they can clear out Bond 2, which doesn't sit well with Felix Leiter, who's in on this call. All right. Dominic Green does like a couple things in this movie he has a fight with camille points to a guy in the water that bond killed then he uh goes on a plane with the cia goes to the opera uh he gives a speech at a party and this party number one and talk about insurance and not having it it's in a condemned building where every like railing is about to fall over and and he almost proves that with camille in one scene so he should should get sued but then basically he goes and he you know completes the blackmail on the uh the dictator there and then he gets his ass kicked by bond and he's brutally murdered when the bad guys that sign up for this scheme okay Mm -hmm. green holds basically an auction for the piece of desert or the oil that's found underneath or whatever. If you were a bad guy interested in this auction and you go, you find out that the place this auction is going to be taking place in is in one of the loudest operas ever. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a red flag as far as this guy's logistical thinking and ability to plan a big heist like this? Like, I'm going to, we're going to rely on these tiny earpieces and that we're all going to hear each other in this giant opera where this, the main crescendo is a guy getting shot with a billion bullets. Nobody's going to, like, I'll I'll take it for two billion dollars. What? Huh? So I can't hear you. It just makes no sense. <laughs> They're good earpieces, ear Mike. And I think the sound guy finally got his way. He's like, I got to showcase this new technology. It's so good. Got to showcase it in a Bond movie. And he got his wish. And it was a lame scene. Just like the speeches given by the sound 
branch. They're lame, and we take one trophy or two trophies, and we turn it into one because of their lame speeches. And I'm just gonna say it like it is. I say the darndest things. It's an Oscars pod. We're supposed to love every award. No, they they give lame speeches. They lose an award. <laughs> that's a ricochet, terrible. ricochet shot. Terrible I wasn't speeches. expecting us to take in this episode, but that's fine. Here's here's another problem with Green's plan to me, Mike. Yeah. Doesn't a lot of it rely on the on the fact that MI6 is going to cut James Bond off? Yeah, of course it does. So and what happens if MI6 just didn't? Because they have a history of Bond acting reckless, but always pre- proving to be on their side in the long run anyway. Again, they're underestimating <laughs> James Bond and the severity of a Judy Dench, you know, hot flash where Bond has that Captain America moment on the ele- elevator. And look, she loses all credibility. MI6, they lose all credibility here. And of course, the villains who kind of thought that they had them played, they lose all credibility as well. So I don't know how to fix this because I think this plan is preposterous. Uh, Goldfingers is the next segment where we type out how we'd fix the problem with the antagonism to defeat Bond once and for all i I think this is just a stupid plan yeah it's a stupid plan because they're starting from a position of extreme weakness they don't have their shit together (laughs) as bad guys lashif is over leveraged he is on a gambling (laughs) bender and needs funds to pay off his warlord bookie right That was the first movie. The second movie is now green. He's trying to hold an entire country hostage for what? Startup capital. Basically. This secret organization does not have enough startup. Yeah, he doesn't have enough money. And he relies on two major things happening that are completely out of his control. One, MI6 distancing themselves from Bond. And two, this Bolivian government coup being successful at all. Because if the current government wins and defeats the overthrow, he's got nothing. He's got nothing. It's so (laughs) dumb. And look... Look, I'm not an advocate for Elon Musk trying to take over this world, but he probably could if he really wanted to. Because, look, we've seen the blueprint in old Bond movies. Unlimited funds were never right, a problem right. for Hugo Drax from Moonraker. Ernst Moneybags Blofeld on Mount Olympus there and on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Or multi-million dollar map room man, Auric Goldfinger. <laughs> that map that cost more than his evil plan. My goodness, those villains... Uh, they had all the money and the resources in the world. I think the words of wisdom today is if you are going to be a megalomaniac, uh, take over the world villain, you need to, only the obscenely wealthy yes. can do as much. Yes. <laughs> See, they veered into politics when they should be going into super villainy. You're absolutely and, right. <laughs> and these new villains talk all kinds of cryptic shit and bluster to M and MI6, but in the end, they're just a bunch of broke-ass blowhards. <laughs> they need startup capital. So what's a better plan for Green? What should he have spent his time doing? Just, like, be a regular criminal on <laughs> Wall Street. <clears throat> Just a legal criminal. You could make up a portfolio. He's wasting all his time trying to mine for oil in the desert when he should just be a finance bro. The startup cost, like they probably blew their startup capital by damming up all of Bolivia. Maybe you know that probably was a costly endeavor. Where do you get the? You don't have money, but you got enough to build an underground dam to hold back the water from an entire country. Right. So that was just a misallocation of resources. (laughs) By the super secret quantum group. Speaking speaking of misallocation of resources or being short on capital, the final section here, one of our favorites, license to bill. We tally up and account for all the damages Bond caused and what it might cost. I, look, I was surprised. Like, for the first hour or so of this movie, right. you don't have really more than your normal everyday Bond casualties in terms of things that cost money. Like, you have your trucks, mm-hmm. your cars. Uh, we talked about the BMW. We have an actual jet and all its cargo at one point yeah that's costing a pretty penny but all told you're probably at maybe a million dollars right there which isn't that much for a bond movie an hour in and then the the secret desert military base slash luxury hotel goes up in flames completely right you know the priceless venice building is not falling into you know atlantis there but uh look in, in italy like you said you have one car crushed by a truck passenger car oh my god it's terrifying (laughs) you have one uninsured twenty thousand dollar car door you have the one church question mark window (laughs) all those roof tiles but again you know we're talking about hundreds of dollars thousands of dollars we're not talking about millions yet and one you know scaffolding set up there in italy that's it that's pretty good right 
Not bad. That's a ch- cheap date right there and for a Bond movie. And, and then um, it gets worse. <laughs> yes, it does. We have <laughs> Port-au-Prince Haiti, every window in that guy's apartment after the knife fight. I mean, Charlie Sheen in Apocalypse Now <laughs> has got nothing on those two in that scene. Every window broken. Uh, Bond does steal. He steals multiple outfits in this movie, but he steals one perfect fitting black jacket <laughs> that looked, you know, very stylish. Right, so, right. again, hundreds of dollars, but, you know, it's at least a hundred, couple hundred dollars there for that jacket. <laughs> uh, several boats and dinghies, but these are cheap boats and dinghies uh, for the most part. I do think there was a yacht in there that might have gotten, you know, sunk uh, but uh, he's driving, Bond is driving that rusted tank of a fishing boat. So good eyes by him to figure out the strong one there in, in Haiti. Uh, he goes to the opera in Austria. And once I saw that production design on stage there, I was like, oh, no, this is going to be costly. But nothing happened. <laughs> right. it's, it's a big misdirect. The sound designer got his way. They've been talking to Mark Forster. Say, hey, you guys are actually writing this script. All I need is one goddamn scene where you don't blow up my shit, Mark. You know the microphones in your ears during this production that you're going to have? They're just the height of technology. You have no delay. You're just going to be able to hear me in, in the utmost clarity. Let's feature that, please, in this Bond movie. It's worth it. Trust me. It'll play. It'll play. No, they, there's no real damage except for one guy that Bond, like, just drops on a car, mm-hmm. which is Green's car, and then Green kills him. Yeah, so uh, we're not even at a million dollars up through Austria. You're absolutely right. I mean, maybe a million plus, but barely. Bolivia, it gets a little hectic. <laughs> uh, we have a bar that's just immediately shot up by the SWAT team. Like, these police in Bolivia shoot first, man. <laughs> My God, they're just nightmares. We have one bed covered in motor oil uh, and one dead British spy there. We have one dumpster covered in dead mattress. <laughs> We have one stolen VW bug, but that was like the grossest VW bug ever. I don't know if that was supposed to be a joke. Anyway, we have three planes, including uh, a Bolivian fighter pilot. I don't know if the helicopter got smashed, but, you know, three planes in Bolivia before one border wall bad guy, you know, villain base. (laughs) Which is the height of that. I mean, that's billions of dollars. Every time Bond manages to just absolutely sink a gigantic top-of-the-line tech-infused building every movie, you would think these countries and these evil organizations would stop building them. Right. Uh, Look, that was a strange finale, though, I thought. Like, I would have enjoyed a couple more master shots. Like, it's almost like Mark Forster was a little allergic to the master shot in this movie. I don't know if you feel felt the same way. Yeah, I understand where that criticism comes from. For me... I just chalked it up because this is most of the same team from Casino Royale. I chalked it up yeah. to since that movie relied so heavily on a subversion of expectation that they were doing the same thing with the finale in this one. And they were setting you up to say this is going to be a different type of bond. Like, yes, we made you wait a couple years, but you're not going to get your big romantic send off. You're not going to get your big dramatic send off. It's just another day in the life and bonds back with MI6 and there's more shit to come in future films. I, I, I feel like I, that's how that's I, Daniel Craig's fault, though, right? Could because be. He's yeah. the co-writer this Absolutely. and he's like hey we were showing the internal journey of one you know jim bond here and i think that we shouldn't do the master shots and i think that got into mark forrester's head during the writing of this and he's like all right we'll keep it all tight it's all tight on you there yeah Daniel. so craig took the script and he was like i'm going to turn this into my oscar effort it's going to be a character right. dissection of the james bond character yeah it could be and uh i just want to make the point about license to bill here mm-hmm. for like the fifth or sixth time in this character study series, all of this damage happens again when Bond is on leave or on the run because he was cut off from his own organization of MI6. James Bond better be a code name like that famous theory online suggests it is, because otherwise we're talking about the most personally liable man in the history of civil court for all the damage this guy has done on his own while detached from any organization that or LLC that has his back. It's either him or Ethan. Right. You're, you're right. <laughs> I was gonna. That was gonna be my next question. Like, all right, MI six is definitely not insured. James Bond is definitely not insured. Yeah, this is a problem. He's walking around. No wonder he's got a death wish. What the fuck does he care if he lives? He can't pay back all that debt that he's that the court's mandating. These poor Italians just sued to the 
up to their eyes in lawsuits. I don't know who did this. I don't know. My my roof collapsed. Uh-huh. It's happening everywhere in this man's wake throughout these 22 films thus far. We didn't even get a hug between him and M at the end to really put the cherry on top of this Quantum of Solace Sunday, but that's all that's right. right. Maybe we'll get it in the next movie. That is the James Bond character study episode of Quantum of Solace, something that Mike and I had to relive, basically, for the first time all over again. Uh, I think better than we expected. You seem to be higher on it than I am, but it's it's a better movie than I thought we were getting. Yeah, B minus, you know, almost a B. Yeah. Solid watch. Probably fair, but as always, we do want to hear from you, dear listener. What are your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, or what are your entries for any of these James Bond character study segments? We want to hear from you. You can leave us those as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com, and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, and if you're quarantining with us or hanging out with us or doing your commute with us we cannot thank you enough if you would be so kind as to go on the apple podcast app and leave us a five-star review it would take 10 seconds out of your day and truly make ours michael you gave some words of wisdom what's coming next from mmo yeah well i I should deliver the words of wisdom better but it's only the obscenely wealthy should attempt a worldwide (laughs) tape takeover never mind a bolivian coup and i think that's the proper delivery anyway mike die by that yeah (laughs) <laughs> what's coming next yeah it should be on fortune cookies just you can steal it i don't care i won't <laughs> sue you all right what's coming next is we actually now have two movie reviews we hope we think with guests that we are going to be rec- recording friday and sunday for releases monday and wednesday of next week so that is because we are getting a slew of new movies and we went book booking crazy. We booked four sets of guests for these movies and I think you guys are going to love it. I can't wait to talk to all of these great guests going forward. But we got the New Mutants. I'm thinking of ending things coming up soon. Then we got Tenet and Mulan coming up later and we're going to have a blast reviewing all those. Yeah, it's almost like the movie industry is like giving us movies to review again. Uh, so that's it's exciting. Yeah, it absolutely is. Going to have plenty of stuff coming down the pipeline for you all, guys. When reality sucks, you can get back to the movies. Share some laughs with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See ya. See ya.